Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Well, hey, folks. For the last week, there's been one story that's dominated news feeds around the world, and that's the current war taking place in Israel. It all started on Saturday the 7th when the Palestinian military group Hamas launched an unexpected assault on Israel. Now, I realize that some of our listeners might be listening to this episode maybe weeks or months from now. And since, Jim, neither one of us knows what's going to unfold between now and then, I thought it might be helpful to maybe just start with a synopsis, at least of right now, what's what's going on or what's happened in this past week since that initial assault. So do you mind starting with that? Yeah, just to kind of put a time frame on this, uh, you're right. Last Saturday, all of America woke up to the news that the terrorist group Hamas, uh, who governed a strip of land adjacent to Israel, to the south of Israel and further south is the sea, but to the south of Israel called the Gaza Strip, attacked the state of Israel. Um, it was 50 years to the day uh, when Israel was also surprise attacked. Um, in October of 1973 by Syria and Egypt in what was known as the Yom Kippur War or the Arab-Israeli War. Um, as th- at the time of this taping, uh, more than 1,200 Israelis have died, uh, another 3,000 or so injured. Um, we've learned that they entered the country through um, paragliders and, and, and storming security gates, like right as a security gate would open, they'd brush to the car, kill everyone in it and go through, uh, all in an effort to bypass what's known as the Iron Dome security uh, Israel uses to protect against missile attacks that is so famous. They essentially went low-tech to, to, to make their invasion, which is why it caught a lot of people by surprise. We've also learned of how barbaric the attack was and how civilians were targeted, uh, including women and children and home invasions and just slaughtering indiscriminately in seats and music concerts, streets and music concerts. Uh, Pregnant women shot, uh, babies beheaded. Uh, There's a a level of barbarism that has shocked the world. And around 150 people, including Americans, have been taken hostage. Um, Israel has since declared war, uh, secured its territory largely, imposed a barricade uh, surrounding the Gaza Strip, uh, has begun bombing strategic military sites, cut off all power and water, and is now preparing for a ground invasion. Uh, there's concern at this stage that this could escalate regionally, uh, largely to the north. As I mentioned, Gaza Strip to the south, but to the north is Lebanon, uh, which is controlled largely or housed largely by the terrorist group Hezbollah who, like the Hamas, are a proxy of Iran. Iran is behind all this. And uh, they've had skirmishes with Israel. And so you have two borders, obviously to the south with the Gaza Strip, but also north of Lebanon, where this could you know, expand. Iran's behind them both. And a lot of people, if you know much about this, you know they are different branches of the Muslim faith. Uh, the Hamas is Sunni and uh, Hezbollah is Shiite. 
but they're united uh, in spite of those differences against Israel and wanting its destruction. But without a doubt, this was Israel's 9-11. Nothing has happened to the Jewish people on this scale with this level of barbarism since the concentration camps of the Nazis. Hmm. Well, as you mentioned, the assault did come as a surprise, at least what happened recently. But in fairness, tension has characterized Palestine and Israel for more than a century. Or if you're a student of the Bible, you might say more than a millennium. So let's talk about the Old Testament nation of Israel first. Like, I guess you would call that the story behind the story. Let's start there. Yeah, I think that's a good place to start to understand this. And then we can kind of take the time clock further. The Jewish people began with the calling of a man named Abram. Uh, But as a nation, we really look to the time of Moses. Uh, Moses led the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage and toward the promised land. He then handed that leadership baton off to his successor, Joshua, who led the people to possess the land. Uh, kind of two stages. Moses took them to the land, but under Joshua, they possessed the land. They were then ruled by various judges uh, until the time they appointed their first king, a man by the name of Saul, who was then followed by one of the greatest leaders of and kings in all of human history, King David. Uh, David started off, as people know, famously winning a fight against a giant named Goliath, but he went on to establish Israel as a premier force in that part of the world. David uh, had a son, a successor named Solomon, A man made his own mark through his incredible God-given wisdom. He's considered and known as the wisest man to have ever lived. Uh, Through that wisdom, he built off of his father David's success, and he led Israel to such military and economic prominence that kings and queens came from around the world just to marvel and learn. The Bible even mentions the Queen of Sheba. The reigns of David and then Solomon constitute what can only be called a golden age for Israel. When Solomon died, his son, Rehoboam, David's grandson, came to the throne, standing in the line of kings, ready to lead Israel forward to even greater levels and heights. And then in a single event, everything was lost. Uh, As the people prepared to install him as king, uh, they made one request. Um, Due to the rapid expansion of the nation, uh, the people had been heavily taxed and large numbers of workers had been conscripted for labor. And so their request was, could Rehoboam, as the new king, inaugurate his reign through an act of kindness, compassion, and sensitivity, and consider lowering taxes and reducing the amount of forced labor, even if for only a season, even just a season of celebrating his new kingship. It was an incredible opportunity to curry favor and win loyalty, and yet he refused. Uh, If you want to paraphrase his response, he says, okay, you want lower taxes and you want less work? Okay, fine. I'm going to raise taxes. I'm going to make you work even harder. As a result, not surprisingly to anybody who's ever taken the Leadership 101 course, the people rebelled and revolted and civil war broke out and division and it divided the kingdom. In fact, it, it, it really does help to understand when you read much of the Old Testament to understand everything we've been talking about because the kingdom was divided and the 12 tribes uh, of Israel uh, revolted and 10 of those 12 became what's known as the Northern Kingdom of Israel. Uh, Only two of the tribes stayed loyal to Rehoboam and they formed the Southern Kingdom known as Judah. And so that kind of ushered in the political, I mean, the prophetic era and it's kind of important to know, okay, was this prophet to the north or was this a prophet to the south? And who was Israel? Who was Judah? And the divide that happened. 
Anyway, it led to ever-increasing levels of political, cultural, and spiritual breakdown in both the North and the South, ushering in, as I mentioned, the prophetic era where God sent prophet after prophet uh, to call the people back to political, cultural, and, and spiritual sanity. Unfortunately, the, the breakdown was so complete that, by and large, the words of the prophets fell on deaf ears. And this led to the prophetic calls of repentance becoming the prophetic declarations of doom and judgment. A 350-year decline was set in motion, uh, which culminated in the exile of both the northern and the southern kingdoms. Uh, the north just fell first. It fell to the Assyrians in 722 BC. And then the south, uh, a few hundred years later, about 150 years later, they fell to the Babylonians in 586 BC. Uh, and when the south fell, that's to, to the Babylonians. That included um, seeing the temple and the holy city of Jerusalem sacked. The northern kingdom was lost forever. If anybody's ever heard of the 10 lost tribes of Israel, that was the northern kingdom. Uh, lost meaning they were dissipated, never gathered, and were just kind of, you know, assimilated with the wider culture. And only a remnant from the southern kingdom was able to return from their exile in Babylon to the promised land to reestablish the Jewish homeland and wait for the Messiah. And that, in effect, ends the history of the Old Testament. I mean, the story of the Bible doesn't pick up again until 400 years later, uh, from Malachi to basically the beginning of the biographies of Jesus. Um, and um, the Israel that he inhabited was populated. When we read the New Testament, what we're talking about is um, that was a remnant from the southern kingdom that has allowed to return from Babylon and trying to reestablish things. By this time, they were ruled by Rome. So that's a, that's a summary of the sociopolitical story of the nation of Israel in regard to biblical history. Hmm. Well, let's turn to the modern day nation state of Israel then. What's some of its more recent history? Yeah, um, the, the history of the Middle East since World War II is more often described in terms of various wars than anything else. I mean, you have the the 1948 war between the Arab countries and the newly created state of Israel. You had the, the 1956 war in which Israel and the United Kingdom and France joined forces against Egypt following the uh, nationalization of the Suez Canal. Uh, the 1967 six-day war and then the October 1973 wars between Israel and its Arab neighbors. You had the war between Israel and Lebanon that began in 1982. You had the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s. You had the 1990-91 uh, Gulf War uh, between an international coalition led by the United States against Iraq following its invasion and subsequent absorption of Kuwait. The 2003 Iraq war that was initiated by the United States and then, you know, Flash forward, and you got this week Israel declaring war on Hamas. Uh, and so, so why must why so much conflict? And specifically related to Israel and within Israel, Jerusalem. Why is that a flashpoint? Well, let's go back to the time of the Crusades. That really began because of Islamic military attacks. Now, atrocities were done on both sides, but there's no doubt this this was this was started by uh, Islamic military attacks. The Crusades were instigated by Islamic military aggression and expansion. Uh, Jerusalem was forced to surrender to a Muslim army in the year 638. Uh, then they immediately began construction of a mosque on Temple Mount. It was the most offensive thing they could possibly do to both the Jews and Christians who lived there. 
by the year 711, uh, they controlled all of North Africa. By the year 846, they were already attacking the outer areas of Rome, which was followed by horrific persecution of Christians. Appeals for help began to go to the Pope, considered largely the leader and protector of Christians around the world at that time, and said, to please come and help. Please come and save the Christians that are being slaughtered in the Christian civilization that was being threatened by this. Uh, from that, the First Crusade was announced by Pope Urban in 1095. Uh, by 1099, Christians had recaptured Jerusalem, but that began a back and forth struggle. Uh, it was back under Islamic control by 1291. It would stay that way until the end of the First World War. The state of Israel, uh, which included Jerusalem, came into being immediately following the end of World War II in 1948. That's when modern day Israel was created, 1948. Really good book, by the way, if, if you really want to kind of get a global perspective of all these you know, sociopolitical things, uh, Richard Haas has written one of the best and simply called The World. And um, he has an excellent section on Israel and the Middle East. He writes that the formation of Israel was the culmination of what was known as the Zionist movement that gained traction in the first half of the 20th century. And the horror of the world in the aftermath of the Holocaust, which saw six million Jews murdered at the hands of Nazi Germany. Jews came to believe that the only way to ensure such a tragedy never happening again would be to have a country of their own. A lot of people agreed and a lot of governments agreed. So much so that a vote of the United Nations, uh, you know, broad coalition, United Nations established the state of Israel. But at the same time, most in the Arab world um, resent or reject Israel as a Western creation imposed on them and paid for by the Palestinians who remain without a country of their own. The 1967 war between Israel and surrounding Arab states shifted the dispute away from Israel's existence to its territorial reach. Uh, often called the Six-Day War, Israel succeeded in seizing the Sinai Peninsula and the Gaza Strip, both then controlled by Egypt. The Golan Heights, controlled by Syria, and the West Bank and East Jerusalem, then under Jordanian authority. They got all that territory. Palestinians, to date, remain stateless and divided with some living on land gained from, uh, on land Israel gained from Jordan in the 1967 war, uh, which is variously called the West Bank or the occupied territories or by many Israelis, Judea and Samaria. Uh, others living in Gaza and still others who were forced out or voluntarily, voluntarily left during the 1948 war and decades later, they remain as refugees in neighboring countries, especially Lebanon and Jordan. UN Security Council Resolution 242 called for Israel to withdraw from territories it gained in the 1967 war um, and have a just settlement of the Palestinian refugee problem and to show respect for the sovereignty and territorial integrity and political independence of every state in the area, along with their right to live in peace within secure and recognized boundaries free from threats or acts of force. But, um, you know, as Haas and others have noted, what this and subsequent resolutions did not do was offer specifics as to how those objectives could be realized. Further, as Israelis have created settlements 
uh, in significant parts of these occupied territories, it makes it more difficult to give them back due to the hundreds of thousands of Israelis who now live there. People wonder why settlements are such a big deal. That's why. Not to mention more difficult to create a territorial basis of a valuable Palestinian state. So that kind of brings us a little up to speed. That's so helpful. Now, you just know that you, you just mentioned something. You, you said Zionism. And I, I, I'm betting that most of our listeners probably don't know what you were talking about. So can you unpack that a little bit and how that has to do with this conversation? Yeah, it's, it, I think I think I can be kind of short and sweet about this because it's one of those things where you can define and describe in a couple paragraphs or you know sentences or, you know, uh, do entire tomes. But here's the gist of it. The Zionist movement began in the 19th century. Uh, to support the establishment of a homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine, corresponding to the land of Israel in Jewish tradition. Following the establishment of Israel, Zionism became an ideology that supports the development and protection of the state of Israel. The apologetic behind it is the idea that Jews really do have a claim on this land that precedes any other, going all the way back to God giving it to them as the promised land under Moses and Joshua. Hmm. The conflict is so challenging because of how obviously intertangled politics are with deeply held religious convictions, you know, with regards to this particular plot of land. But kind of as you mentioned already, Israel isn't only special to the Jewish community, but also to the Arab community and the Palestinian community. Jerusalem, as you um, highlighted, plays a central role in this debate. So can you talk a little bit more about Jerusalem with regards to this? Yeah, beyond the territorial disputes lies the religious dynamic, and not least of which, Israel claiming Jerusalem for its own and, gasp, naming it as its capital. Hmm. And people say, well, why is that a big deal? Well, Jerusalem can't help but be a flashpoint. It's at the heart of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because both groups consider it their capital. Mm-hmm. Both do. And in terms of religious faith, It contains Judaism's holiest site, Islam's third holiest site, and what is arguably Christianity's most sacred site. So the three great monotheistic religions of the world all look to Jerusalem as their sacred ground. For Jews, Jerusalem is the site of the temple that was built where the great patriarch of the Old Testament, Abraham, was to sacrifice his son, Isaac. It was destroyed and then rebuilt again on the sacred ground of Abraham. The Western Wall, or what's known as the Wailing Wall, if people have seen pictures of that wall and people praying before it or putting bits of paper in the cracks, uh, that's the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. It is the surviving remnant, the only surviving remnant of the second temple and is Judaism's holiest site. To Christians, Jerusalem is the site where the Last Supper took place and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And you're right outside of the walls, the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you've been there, I mean, it's all packed in there. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem is said to be built on the site where uh, those events took place. Uh, That's what the word sepulchre means, a small room cut into rock where a dead person is laid. Uh, And so when you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you go in and uh, there's the place where you know, Golgotha, the rock of Golgotha. There's the table where Jesus' body was laid. There's a tomb in which he was laid. It's all right there. Um, Jerusalem is also sacred to Muslims because Muhammad is said to have ascended uh, to heaven from the stone uh, 
that is now enclosed by the dome of the rock on Jerusalem's Temple Mount. The mosque there is considered the third holiest mosque in the Muslim world after the ones in Mecca and Medina. Mm. I think it's fair to say that egregious acts have been taken on all sides throughout this marathon conflict. But currently, a lot of support is seen for Israel in response to the Hamas attacks, particularly, particularly as you mentioned, the brutality of those attacks. Um, in fact, some people are calling on Israel to hold nothing back, completely destroy Gaza and all who live here, live there, and all in the name of a just war. I've heard you talk about the just war theory before. So do you mind unpacking that a bit for the sake of this conversation? You know, even as you were raising that question, there's a couple of things that came to mind that I think are important to understand um, that, uh, that Israel declared war on Hamas. They did not declare war on Palestinians or the Palestinian people. I think that's very important to understand. Hamas is a, is a terrorist group that has political control over, over the Gaza Strip. But um, there are many people in the Gaza Strip that are not part of Hamas and don't agree with the attack. And, you know, so there, it, it is against Hamas. It is against a terrorist group that is in political control of the Gaza Strip. And I think what people are calling for and Israel itself wants to do is completely eradicate Hamas, not the Gaza Strip. They don't, they, and they have no desire to control the Gaza Strip or to take over the Gaza Strip. They don't want the Gaza Strip, quite frankly. They want to get rid of Hamas. Um. So having said that, let, let's, let's talk about war. Um, and let's make sure that we, we don't misunderstand war and violence before I get into that. Namely that they, they, they are one and the same. It's, it's nonsensical to separate the two. War is brutal. It's violent. It's bloody. It's messy. There's, there's collateral damage. And unfortunately, there will be, have, has been and will be death to civilians. Uh, and this is nothing new in the history of warfare. War is war. But having said that, the question is, can it ever be just? And, it, and, and, and I think that's a, a critical question. Uh, deep within Christian theology and Christian history has been the idea that there is such a thing as a just war. There is. In essence, the idea of a just war takes a great commandment of Jesus in relation to peace, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, and applies it to the representation of government and the responsibilities of government. While owning the fact that Jesus taught that it would be wrong for an individual Christian to defend himself or herself against attack or, or to impose justice themselves, based on such passages as Matthew 5. In other words, there's not a private right to kill. It is the duty and responsibility of Christians who have public responsibility, a magistrate, a soldier, a police officer, a king, a president, to use discriminate and proportionate force to defend and protect their fellow human beings. In other words, we're not to take the law into our own hands, but that does not mean that the law cannot be taken up. Uh, in, in fact, law has to be established. To love our neighbor personally and to love our neighbor corporately sometimes can involve the use of force or police action or courts of law, punishments, prisons, and yes, even war. There are great heroes of the Bible who were warriors and who were commanded by God to go to war. I mean, people like Joshua and David and Samson and Deborah and Gideon. Um, going further, when you study the life of Jesus, you notice that he never, ever called a soldier who came to him in faith out of his military duties. That was never a package. Uh, never once did Jesus say to a Roman centurion, 
leave the army. And in his own life, he was known to use force, making a whip, cords, driving, clearing out the temple. As a result, the idea of a just war has been with Christian thinking really from the very beginning, as I mentioned, but with both very specific conditions. And so here's how the just war theory um, has developed. Here, here are the conditions that have to be in place for a war to be just. There has to be an urgent and imminent threat. It must be an act of defense against aggression, never simply for conquest or an act of aggression, only a defensive war is defensible. It must be ordered by one who has the authority on behalf of the people to do so. It must be for a just cause. Uh, it must have the right intention. It should not be based on revenge, but it should be rooted as an act of neighbor love and protection with peace as its goal. It should be the last resort. Uh, peace and resolution should have been attempted. The force used must be proportionate to the desired ends, meaning that the evils caused by the war are less than the evils to be righted. It must seek to minimize non-combatant civilian casualties, and it must have a reasonable chance of success. When this is carried out by those in civic authority, it can be considered just and should be supported, even if preemptive meaning striking first. If the threat is urgent and imminent, then striking first to prevent the threat is considered an act of, again, neighborly love. To fail to engage in a just war, to fail to use force to aid our neighbor when force is the best way to render that aid is to refuse the love of God to another person and thus a failure to love your neighbor as yourself. For example, in the Old Testament, God told Joshua to go to war against the Midianites because they were being oppressive and they were committing all kinds of atrocities, including building these huge bonfires and throwing young children into them to be burned alive. In the book of Numbers, God reveals his anger and not just at the Midianites. He's also angry that two of the 12 tribes of Israel wouldn't go to war against them to stop those atrocities. So his anger was against the Midianites as well as two of the 12 tribes, because they wouldn't go to war. And they should have, because it was just. So the question is not whether war can ever be justified, it can, or whether war can ever be just, it can. At least that's where Christians have landed for 2,000 years, and you can look at the Old Testament history as well, and seemingly that was God's uh, intent as well. The real question is whether you think a particular act meets the threshold of a just war. For example, the attacks on September 11th here in our own country and preventing future attacks of that kind or the attack on Israel by the terrorist group Hamas. I don't know of any Christian theologian or ethicist that doesn't believe that Israel declaring war in light of the Hamas terrorist attack is just. Everybody, everybody to a person has said this, if there's ever anything that fulfills a just war, it is this. They need to defend their borders. They need to secure their territory. They need to intervene and stop the, the, the slaughter of innocents and children uh, because of the, and the barbarism is showing absolutely no restraint. So yes, it, this, this would constitute in the minds of many and, and in my own thinking as well, um, a just declaration of war. Now, whether they remain within the confines of a just war 
I mean, I think there's no problem with Christians holding Israel to account. This is not like a green light, do whatever you want. Um, you know, we as Christians would want to see this kept within the confines, as I just mentioned, of just war application. But at this point, the declaration of the war and what they've done so far has certainly in the minds of everyone that I know, and my, myself included, just. It's just. As if all of that is not enough to consider, <laughs> there's also this all of this talk recently about the connection between what's happening right now and Old Testament prophecies, particularly regarding the end times. So can you just talk, I've already given you so many things to have to unpack today, but um, could you just unpack some of those prophecies and and really whether you even buy the connection? Yeah, I I think we're going to be doing a blog coming up on the end times where we can unpack this even further uh, or will unpack this even further. But let me speak specifically to this conflict here in Israel and what is buzzing around the internet. Uh, those who hold to this being tied to end times prophecy look to, for example, what the prophet Zechariah foretold about um, God using the city of Jerusalem to bring his judgment upon the world. And in Zechariah 12, there's a verse that talks about how he'll make Jerusalem so immovable, like, like an immovable rock, and all the nations will gather against it to try to move it and They'll just break apart upon that rock. And further, they see the regathering of Israel to their homeland in 1948 as prophetic. Uh, It's this regathering, they would say, that was foretold by Ezekiel. Ezekiel talks about some of this in chapters 37 and 38, that kind of section of, of apocalyptic literature in Ezekiel, where it moves from prophetic literature to more apocalyptic literature. Um, and prophetic literature is like, you know, prophecy given to people, specific words, apocalyptic literature is description of visions and say, uh, that's a kind of a quick definition. But Ezekiel chapters 37 and 38 in there, it moves into apocalyptic literature. And there is talk there about an invasion from the north by Magog. Uh, And Bible scholars have long speculated that that would be Russia and her allies Uh, on invading the land of Israel. And that one of her allies that will march with her will be Persia. And if you look at where ancient Persia was and modern day Persia, that would be, people would suspect that that's modern day Iran. And Iran is behind both Hamas and Hezbollah. They're proxy groups of Iran. And Iran is a sworn enemy of of Israel. Um, So if that conflict erupts, some, which it has now, but... People who read the Bible that way, <coughs> people who read the Bible that way, would say that you know when when or if such a conflict erupts, it is a fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy and the beginning of the unfolding of the end of the end of times. That's not the only view of the way those scriptures can be interpreted. Uh, many Christians who have a biblical understanding of the nation of Israel fail to have a modern socio-political understanding of the current state of Israel created in 1948 as that biblical tie in with Israel. Many would suggest they should not be confused with one another. What began in 1948 should not be confused with the Israel of the Bible. Uh, So while some support Israel based on eschatological views that cast the modern state of Israel having some role in biblical prophecy, many others don't share those beliefs. They believe the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ, not in the 1948 Israeli Declaration of Independence. Hmm. I know I speak for a lot of us when I say that it, it just feels, we feel helpless, you know, watching the news about how this is all unfolding. 
how would you instruct our listeners to act or to pray in the weeks ahead? First thing I would say is don't give in to fear or anxiety. Uh, that is not a Christian response. If, if there's anything throughout scriptures to, to Christians is don't fear, don't give in to anxiety, don't worry. Um, second, um, I believe Christians should stand firmly with Israel against this terrorist attack. I, I really do. We should have, I, I, I really, at this stage in, in, in where things are, okay, and again, we don't know what events are going to unfold in the weeks to come, but at this stage, we should have absolute moral clarity about the barbarism that was inflicted on Israel and Israel's right and duty to defend itself. I think we need to stand and have absolute moral clarity about that. Third, pray. And here's what I'll be praying. In fact, uh, this weekend, I'll be uh, having a prayer that I will lead online and in person for our church as we gather. And I'll go ahead and tell you what I'm, I'm going to be praying. You know, I'm going to say, you know, uh, Father, you, you love everyone in this world. Jewish people and Palestinians alike, but you are heartbroken when war and violence erupt, when there is terrorism and acts of terrorism and acts of barbarism. Uh, for this, there is no political excuse. Uh, so we pray for Israel. We pray for the safe return of hostages. We, we pray that things will quickly de-escalate. Uh, we pray that as Israel seeks to defend itself and secure its borders, that it will not give in to the temptation to meet barbarism with barbarism, but will wage war to defend itself as justly as possible. Uh, and just for the great loss of life and the grief and the confusion, the fear and the anxiety, we pray for comfort. And for those in leadership, uh, oh, we pray for wisdom and we pray for discernment. And I think I'll add in Jesus name. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it's in his name that we, we must offer these prayers and for his sake. Absolutely. Gosh, thank you so much, Jim, for taking the time to give us some background on what's going on. This is certainly so much of what you shared is not what we're going to be reading about in headlines. And yet it, it is so informative to understand really what's happening and so that we know specifically how to pray. And so, yeah, thank you for taking the time to do this. And for those of you guys who are listening, I do pray that you would join us in prayer um, in the weeks, hopefully not months, but weeks to come um, as we just wait to see, you know, how how this all um unfolds. But thank you for listening today. We hope this was helpful for you and we hope you'll join us again next week.